Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest podcast, your weekly data centers and telecoms news roundup brought to you by Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief John Max Lima, and I'm joined by our Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and Senior Reporters Abigail Opia and Natalie Berneman. This week we are also joined by Matt Pollan, Executive Vice President and Managing Director for Europe at Data Center Operator Cyrus One. We'll be speaking to Abigail about the importance of data centers during the pandemic, how the industry has responded and why he thinks the sector should be seen as a critical infrastructure given the way in, in which he has helped keeping the world connected throughout COVID-19. Uh, but first, this week's headlines. Actis and GS Group have announced plans to build a $350 million data center in South Korea. Satellite company OneWeb says it will restart launches ahead of commercial service in 2021. Mobile network operators are urged to move on security strategies for device malware and T-Mobile and American Tower Inc. a new multi-year deal. But first up, let's go to South Korea, uh, where private equity firm Actis is set to take a 75% stake in a new joint venture with GS Engineering and Construction, the construction arm of the GS Group, one of Korea's largest conglomerates. Um, Abigail, here we are again uh, with yet another PE brand pushing for data center development and once again with a hefty budget. What more do you know about this project? Yeah, so Actis has been quite busy. The private equity firm is set to take a 75% stake in a new joint venture with GS ENC, which is the construction arm of GS Group, one of um, Korea's largest conglomerates. The partners have said that they will build and operate a 21 megawatt internet data center in Greater Seoul, with the development costing, like you said, $315 million. The company said that the data center will be capable of hosting cloud services uh, cloud service providers, which will allow them to address mismatches between supply and demand in SEAL. The region has a 95% smartphone penetration and has seen mobile data um, traffic increase by 26 um, times since 2012. Now, the new facility, which is going to be eight stories, is GSENC's 10th data center project, and the company has said that it will um, be built to tier three standard. The facility will feature a 1,600 high density um, racks for its CSP clients and a further 400 low density racks for co-location customers. The investment is a continuation of Actis's um, build to core strategy in Korea. That's what they've said. The company um, also created Chinese data center platform Sheora Holdings to develop hyperscale data center facilities to serve the Chinese market. Now, earlier this year, and I think I actually mentioned this in um, a few podcast episodes ago, Actis also established a 25, uh, 50 sorry million pan-african data center platform starting with an investment in rack center in lagos nigeria the company actis is an investor and it plans to grow its markets in africa asia and latin america and since its inception it has raised a total of 19 billion us dollars so yeah a lot that's a lot <laughs> it's gonna be i mean it's gonna be great to see just this investment and just how it, they're gonna grow this data center facility it sounds like a big um big thing for south korea so we'll be interested to see how that pans out yeah no i mean the south korean market it's um it's a very interesting market because we've seen digital realty as well going into a joint venture there um i think it was the toshiba corporation but don't quote me on that i can't remember the exact name now um but it was about i think it was a one billion dollar joint venture to build 10 data centers over the years. Um, I mean, the market in Seoul is booming. 
which is quite, I'm not going to say surprising, but it's quite, um, I'm going to call it fascinating because it's a very expensive market to build. Um, land is not cheap there. Um, so it's interesting to see all these developments. Um, and again, on the bigger scheme of things, like seeing another private equity investing $300 million um, into building a data center, it's it's always, I think it's an amazing movement in the market um, that we keep seeing money coming in. Um, we've had another, we had more money being spent this week in um, in Asia with GDS buying a data center in Beijing. Um, in the US, we saw Lines getting a $1 billion credit facility, um, which was actually the first US data center sustainability linked financing round. Um, so, I mean, again, it's another week, and I think it's another very positive week for data centers, um, despite everything that's going on in the world. And I think it will carry on this way for the foreseeable future. Um, thank you, Abigail. And um, from ICT infrastructure on Earth to the one up above in space, one web is to restart satellite, launched, uh, satellite launches in December and plans to have most of its fleet in service by the end of 2022. Um, Alan, you are our satellite correspondent almost. This is quite an interesting case because here we have a name that is in protection of bankruptcy. The UK government is to pour some money into it, has gone through COVID and the whole supply chain problems that came with it. Um, and here we go now back to, again, launches. Like that, can yes. you affect this for us? Yes, yes, it looks like the UK government's going to have some shiny new toys to play with uh, come December and through the next two years. Uh, OneWeb, as you said, uh, it was... Uh, backed by, it's a, it's a low orbit satellite project, backed by Airbus and a lot of other companies to start with. It's got a shiny new factory in Florida building these small satellites. Um, and then it went bust. It said it was going into bankruptcy protection uh, in March. Um, and in fact, Natalie wrote the story then. It was uh, really saying COVID-19 was the problem. Um, and... But then suddenly the UK came in, um, the UK government came in and said, we would like a, a satellite project. Um, uh, originally, they seemed to get the whole idea of what OneWeb was wrong. They thought it was a positioning system. And of course, the UK has been locked out of the European Galileo uh, project, positioning project, um, because the UK has left the EU. Um, and it's a year, an EU-backed project, and UK wanted an alternative to uh, GPS, which is American, and GLONASS, which is Russian, and uh, I think there's another one as well. Um, I think the ministers just got the wrong end of the stick, but anyway, it said where they put half a million dollars into OneWeb, and it persuaded Bahati, the Indian company, to come up with another half million, and then Hughes Satellites, uh, company in the States, uh, which was going to also use uh, OneWeb, uh, came up with $50 million. So that's a billion and a bit uh, into uh, OneWeb. Um, it seems to be heading to getting out of bankruptcy protection, probably in November, December. Uh, it's obviously got to go through the courts and the courts have got to approve it. Um, but and it needs regulatory consent for the takeovers as well, um, which might be a stumbling block that I haven't heard because it's OneWeb as you know U U US satellites. It's a very international project. It's you know a French company owns half the factory. Uh, it's a US-based factory, and it's going to be owned by a UK and Indian 
operator uh, companies or the UK government. So it's quite complex, but it will probably, I would guess, with all that money behind it, probably come out of bankruptcy protection quite seriously. And it, given the confidence that it's got that it will emerge, it's decided to start launches again. The last one was in March, just as it was going bust. Um, and it's only got oh, 74 satellites in orbit so far. It needs several hundred. It's going to have launch 36 uh, with the inaugural launch in December. And then it's going to launch a lot more over the next couple of years, up to uh, several hundred by 2022. Uh, but it says it's going to start commercial services at the end of 2021. Uh, and the UK, not surprisingly, is going to be one of the first markets it will address. Uh, it's going to be 500 kilometres up, so it'd be very low latency, much lower than conventional satellites, which are really, really slow. And, you know, the, a satellite, if it's above your head, will be nearer, closer than distance between London and Frankfurt, for example. So latency will be really, really fast. Um, and Alaska and Northern Europe, so Greenland, Iceland, the Arctic and Northern Canada. And, and the reason, of course, is that those areas are historically outside the range of conventional satellites, because once you get north of that sort of Iceland latitude, the satellites are really below the horizon, so you can't see them at all, the conventional geostationary satellites. So this is where low orbit satellites come in. They whiz round, you need some clever antennas, but that's really fairly straightforward. Um, and and the first launch will be in from Russia. I mean, the satellite business is extraordinarily international. Um, the Russians have ever since the Soviet Union days um, launched most of their rockets from Baikonur, which is in Kazakhstan, which, of course, has been independent since the Soviet Union broke up. Um, and there's a Russian enclave uh, there, which is a very strange sort of place. Uh, it shows... It, it sort of collapsed in 1990 when you know the Russian economy collapsed, the Soviet economy collapsed, and it's still literally got wreckage of trains and factories and all that sort of thing all over the place. Um, I went there uh, with Utilsat um, about 10 years ago. It was a very spooky place to watch a launch. Um, and But there's two other rocket launching sites that they were going to be used. One will be Baikonur, one will be the new one the Russians, Russians are building in Fostochny Cosmodrome, uh, which, sorry for my attempt at pronunciation of Russian. And the other one will be in Kourou in French Guiana, which is where Ariane Spass, the, the French company, started off uh, decades ago um, uh, on the coast of uh, South America, um, which is also a fascinating place. I'm very lucky to have been there uh, a long time ago. But so the, the, the idea is there'll be hundreds of OneWeb satellites in orbit uh, by the end of 2021. So they'll be able to launch commercial service. And then when the rest of the satellites go up uh, over the next few years, uh, it'll be able to go into full commercial service uh, worldwide, I guess. So uh, we don't know. I mean, we don't know the, the commercial plan that they have. It's obviously a wholesale project uh, because they will be selling services to uh, local telcos uh, for connecting services. Um, whether there's a retail project that you'll be able to put a satellite antenna or a pair of antennas on your house so you can get internet access in remote areas, uh, I don't know. We will learn over the next few months, I suppose, from OneWeb. Um, 
but it's firstly got to emerge from bankruptcy protection and then get on launching, uh, which will be fun. No, absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, the whole thing sounds super interesting, um, despite some of the financial um, hardship. Yeah. I remember they're in, a, they're in a race with SpaceX, which is doing mm. the same sort of thing, and with Amazon, which also has a low orbit satellite project. And with, you know, so is the market going to be swamped? Probably yes. <laughs> but will there, is there room for all of them? I don't know. It depends on the commercial terms. It sounds like it's going to be quite a cutthroat market, though, because obviously they want traffic on those satellites, especially with a political incentive that you know there is a, a uk set of uk government ministers who have said yeah this is worth half a million dollars of uk taxpayers money so yeah we'll see what happens yeah we'll see if the taxpayer is happy to pay for that money um but well guess... yeah there was a big controversy in the summer uh where the the then head of uh, the relevant department said, I don't necessarily have enough evidence to show that this is a worthwhile use of taxpayers' money. And a uh, backbench committee of MPs has also questioned it. But I don't know, maybe they'll get some invites to the launches and that will help <laughs> with some Russian champagne. And yeah, <laughs> yeah as long as nothing explodes on the way up. <laughs> I guess well, you, you watch these things from a safe distance. I've only watched one live, one live launch in my, my life, and that was at Baikonur. And we were about 10 miles away. So, you know, mm. we were well out of range. Mm. I think I'll stick to the TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> all right, Alan, thank you so much um, for bringing this story up. And uh, so moving from space now to a quite worrying warning. Um, so in sort of a worrying wake up call, mobile network operators are being urged to step up their security game after a series of scandals involving malware on devices. Melanie, this, as I said, like is quite worrying. It's the third time I've used the word um, in this short introduction. But um, we know that this will forever be a fight MNOs and everyone else will have to put up with when it comes to cybersecurity and malware and all this sort of stuff. But from this news, it seems like we are still missing the basics. Um, what can you tell us? Thanks, Xiao. Um, yeah, that's pretty much exactly um, what we've concluded on this one. Um, and like you said, this is a really worrying trend, um, but it isn't one that's really um, being grasped um, across the industry as um, as other issues have been tackled in the past. Um, now, this week I spoke with Jeffrey Cleves, um, who heads up a security platform called SecureD um, for a company called Upstream. Now, SecureD bills itself as providing real-time fraud detection to mobile operators and digital marketers. Um, and as of the end of last year, the company was monitoring 31 mobile operators in 20 countries. Um, so it's a significant global footprint. Um, now, Jeff became a bit of a security celebrity last month when SecureD published evidence that had gathered um, about malware being pre-installed on low-cost mobile phones in Africa. Um, you'll probably rem remember the story. It was huge. It was picked up by everybody, mainstream and trade media. Um, now, that story broke only recently, so I won't recount all the details, but some key figures um, that emerged during that time. Um, a total of 19.2 million suspicious transactions were recorded by SecureD um, from more than 200,000 unique devices, and these would have signed users up to subscription services without their permission. Um, now, the activity centered on devices in Ethiopia, Cameroon, Egypt, Ghana, and South Africa, with fraudulent mobile transaction activity detected in another 14 countries, also in Africa. Um, these are all countries where the targets, i.e. data and mobile money, are incredibly important functions for subscribers. 
those. And we spoke on this podcast only a couple of episodes ago about the rise in the importance of mobile money operations among the MNOs in Africa. Um, and in terms of data, Security said that across the continent, on average, um, one GB of data costs prepaid prepaid mobile subscribers the equivalent of 16 hours work at minimum wage um so you know even for those people who don't fully understand the um, marketplace value of themselves as a consumer this is central to their livelihoods and also their um, day-to-day lives. Um, Now, Google told Upstream that the installation was the action of a malicious supplier somewhere within the supply chain of affected devices. Transient, the device manufacturer, quietly released a patch and didn't directly comment. So it's a manufacturer and consumer issue on the surface, but like you said, Shia, this isn't an isolated issue. And we've learned this week um, that new information is going to be released over the coming months about another device manufacturer, which we have been told is bigger than Transient and it's having the same problem. Um, So we've established a trend here um, and an emerging security threat for mobile operators who have largely been focused on fraud committed against themselves. Um, So for example, fraudulent traffic on the network or billing fraud or any of the numerous security threats that arise across the network. But all this suggests that, as Jeff told us, the story that broke last month really is the tip of the iceberg. Um, Now, from a manufacturer perspective, they release a patch, the security's enhanced, and eventually everybody forgets about it and instead focuses on the benefits of, you know, having these low-cost handsets and devices. Um, But the fix for operators is brand reputation, and it isn't quite so black and white. Now, the evidence suggests the problem is getting worse. Um, In the course of its business activities in 2019, SecureD discovered 98,000 malicious apps, um, and that was up from 63,000 in 2018. Um, And those 98,000 malicious apps last year infected 43 million Android devices. 43 million Android devices. Again, it's worrying. Um, Add to that what we've seen happen in cybersecurity this year. Um, So we're talking explosion in scam links, spoofing um, official websites, redirections, social engineering, phishing, state-sponsored cyber attacks on multiple nations. Um, It's safe to say that things have really stepped up. Um, And while COVID may have highlighted that in recent months, this particular trend about the malware and the devices has actually been building for quite a while. Um, So yeah, I mean, what can mobile operators do? These aren't necessarily their devices. It's not, well, they're not their devices. You know, this isn't necessarily their immediate problem. Um, and with all, with, as with all good news stories these days, um, the company highlighting the problem is also the company that has the solution. Um, but this isn't a promo piece, so we're not going to expand on that. Um, but we often say that the perpetrators in these instances are always one step ahead. Um, well, as the reactors, it's, poss- it's, you know, it's impossible to stay one step ahead of them all the time because when we're talking about security of networks, devices, identities, and of course data. But in conclusion, we know security threats evolve and they evolve faster in environments like the one we're currently living and working in. And new threats and methods of attack that have emerged this year won't be going away. Um, So it's now time, I feel, for a more collaborative approach to security. Um, One that instead of trying to stay ahead, it actually casts the net a little bit wider and allows for collaboration, not just between individual firms that exist across the industry landscape, but for individual sectors of our industry and others, for example, network operators and manufacturers. Um, And let's see, but this trend has been gathering pace for quite a while. Um, We shouldn't just expect it to go away. And yes, Xiao, like you said, it is actually quite worrying. And I think you raised some very good points there, especially on the collaboration brand reputation. Uh, I mean, collaboration, we've been hearing about that, the calls for collaboration have been going on around for for so long, um, I think as, as far as the mind can go. Um, I think it's really it should really be time now that people just get on the table and just start working together um, to try and solve out these problems. Um, and I think on the brand reputation, I think that's sometimes one that people forget. And and we've seen in the past companies 
managing stuff like this very well. If something happens and they manage their brand reputation, they come out and they explain things to people, while others sometimes just go into um, a box and they don't tell you anything. So, I mean, I think brand reputation is always that forgotten, uh, not always, but most times it's forgotten by a lot of the companies, the companies that go through these sort of situations. And, um, and yes, it's all very worrying because at the end of the day, it's your data, um, it's your life, it's your privacy, and all these things impact the consumer. Exactly. And, you know, if you think of the consumer's perspective, when you have a device, a handset, for example, if something goes wrong on that handset, you don't necessarily know to contact the device manufacturer. You immediately mm. assume that, that fault has occurred on the network. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to it. <laughs> yeah, well, because the ecosystem is very complicated. Um, this actually, when you said when you said that just now, it reminded me of the discussion we were having about um, driverless cars um, a few years ago, where the main question was, where's the responsibility or the liability fall um, if something goes wrong? Is it the software provider? Is it the manufacturer of the car itself? Is it the, man, the chip manufacturer? Um, is it the network around the car? Um, so I think I think we have a lot of discussions like that to have, um, not just in telecoms, but across the wider technology sector. Uh, but yeah, on this particular story, I think we really need to move on on this quite quick um, as we become more for mobile worlds, um, especially in emerging countries as well. Um, but thank you, Melanie. And um, so on to our last headline of the, the, of the week. T-Mobile and American Tower Corporation have signed an almost 15-year agreement uh, to deliver significant value to, for both parties, or so they claim. Um, Natalie, tell us about this agreement and what value does it bring? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, long-term collaborators T-Mobile and American Tower have inked a new 15-year agreement, uh, which according to reports has been valued at about $17 billion, um, so a very huge figure there. Um, now, the deal is set to enhance T-Mobile's access to American Tower's US sites, um, and as well as maximizing the synergies between the two, will we'll provide support for um, T-Mobile's deployment of nationwide 5G. Um, hardly surprising, considering that's where most of T-Mobile's investments these days seem to be going. Um, for the on American Towers part, it will also provide long-term revenue growth. Now, through the collaboration, T-Mobile said it will continue to serve its customers' wireless needs as well as future-proofing um, for um, the requirements ahead um, and also allows them to increase the momentum on its 5G report, um, deployment, um, adding coverage and enhancing speed for, you know, thousands of cities and uh, towns across the country. Now, according to um, New Street Research, the agreement is positive for T-Mobile in another aspect because it will also enable them to integrate Sprint's Spectrum um, and decommission Sprint's legacy sites at far, uh, a far um, faster pace than it would have um, otherwise. For those who are unaware, obviously T-Mobile uh, acquired Sprint um, earlier this year. I believe it was April, April, May uh, time. Um, and also the kind of long duration of this particular agreement between the two will um, allow them to complete future 5G builds at a faster pace as well, because it's worth noting that most standard US um, tower agreements last for around 10 years. And of course, this one is for 15 years. Now, analysts believe that T-Mobile will also ink similar rental agreements with the market's other two leaders, um, which is Crown Castle and SBA Communications. Um, but of course, at this point, it's speculative um, so we will be keeping an eye out. But really, this is just an extension of a very long term uh, partnership between the two. And uh, we'll see how that will impact um, T-Mobile's 5G deployments. Interesting, super interesting. Um, and we'll carry on keeping an eye on that one over the, the next few months and uh, and as the agreement goes into the next nearly 15 years, <laughs> hopefully. <Absolutely. laughs> 
Uh, okay, thank you, Natalie. And um, on to our last segment of this week's podcast. Um, our guest, Matt Pullen, Executive Vice President and Managing Director for Europe at Data Center Reed Cyrus One, speaks to senior reporter Abigail Opia on data centers versus COVID. Abigail, take it away. As countries implemented restrictions on travel during the COVID-19 pandemic, data centers were included in a list of essential infrastructure, with staff getting exemptions to enable them to keep facilities online. Matt Pullen, EVP, Managing Director Europe at Cyrus One, joins me to discuss the importance of data centers during the pandemic. Thank you for joining me, Matt. That's no problem. Um, let's go straight into it. What is the importance of a data center, especially during this pandemic? And what are some of the trends you've witnessed during the months of lockdown? So the importance of data centers during the pandemic, well, I think it's fair to say the industry has worked as hard as it can to keep the world connected during this critical time. Uh, our sector has never been more relevant and critical for ensuring essential infrastructure such as health service, transport, media, supply chain, etc., remains operational to give us the best chance of successfully coping and dealing with the pandemic. Um, in, term, yeah, in terms of trends, the, the obvious one is that there's been just a massive surge in inf- internet traffic in most cities around the world as people work, learn and run their lives from home like never before. I think the data centre industry has demonstrated its ability to meet this challenge head on and proven that connectivity is mission critical and that data centers are part of the front line of emergency response. Right, and other than connectivity, what are some of the reasons why you think the data center industry should be seen as critical infrastructure? Well, I, I think you can, just, just to bring it down to simple basics, um, our buildings, for example, house cloud companies who are serving not just consumers, so right down to everything from ordering your groceries um, to ensure that people remain safe at home and don't have to visit the shops, right through to serving enterprise companies to provide the sort of platform that we're talking on today to ensure, again, that people can work very, very effectively from home so that the economy is kept moving, but people are also kept safe. I mean, in some ways, it can be more simple than in that summary, but you know, there's so much in between, um, as, as I highlighted at the beginning. And what are some of the things that have been um, different for Cyrus One, especially during this pandemic? Have they, the company, noticed anything different? Have they had to implement new um, facilities, for example, or has there been just a, any kind of change for the company to keep on top of new wave of connectivity demands? I, so I, I'll kind of segment the response, if you like. So um, from an operational point of view, I mean, the good thing is that data centers, operational data centers are highly secure environments anyway. Um, They they have to be um, for all the reasons that you understand. Um, So it's been relatively straightforward for us to implement um, measures to ensure that our operational staff on the data centers in the data centers are kept safe and that our customer staff are kept safe because we have multiple layers of security which lend themselves very well to sort of multiple layers of screening. So not, not a lot has been different from an operational point of view. Um, I think the, the biggest challenge that we've had has been around our construction sites. And I, I would put the backdrop in that there's been an unprecedented surge in demand. Um, the scale of 
the demand has, has led to you know, us implementing an enormous development program to try and deliver capacity um, to meet our, our, our customers' forecasted demands, um, meaning that we've got multiple sites across the region with, with up to three, 350 construction workers. And one of the biggest challenges being how do you keep those construction sites open and how do you keep the construction workers safe? How do you ensure that you're getting um, materials and inventory to site? Um, and at times it's been incredibly challenging. In, in Ireland, for example, uh, we, we followed government guidelines and we shut our site for nearly eight weeks. Um, in parts of mainland Europe, there have been severe issues in terms of getting uh, certainly foreign labour, Eastern European labour to site cross-border, and also getting getting some some of the supply chain um, to to site. Um, but we've we've found we found ways of, of of dealing with those issues, and importantly, we've, we've leveraged government support almost back to the original question observations that you gave and, and that's been absolutely essential in terms of keeping momentum um, I think it, you know the, the more simple scenario has been dealing with our, our head office folk um, we've been working from home until recently where we've opened the office but we've opened the offices on the basis of you know people can return to work if they want to it's their choice um, and we've obviously implemented strict social distancing guidelines and guidelines that only see the the office at, at limited capacity at any one time so in terms of predictions for the data center sector i can imagine that people would have never thought that you know 2020 would look like this or no one was really prepared for what the pandemic had um in store so my, I've got two parts to this question. The first part is, um, do you think that companies um, were having to play catch up with the, the level of like service they needed to provide? And do you think, uh, and what do you think the sector will look like in the next five years as a result, a result of the pandemic? So I, 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 I think the demand to see from a consumer point of view is, is, is blindingly obvious. So you know, there, there'll be an exponential growth in consumer demand for, for, you know, internet-based uh, services. I think the, the biggest impact in terms of capacity requirements is coming from the, the enterprise sector. So if you think going into the pandemic, a lot of, a lot of sources were, were estimating that enterprise companies spend in terms of their overall IT spend was only at about 10 to 15% as it related to cloud services. Um, and there was a prediction way before the pandemic that, you know, over the next five years, we'd see that double um, easily. And, you know, this, the scale of that, because those are easy sort of simple numbers to throw out, but the scale in terms of how that then impacts um, the growth in demand from the, the big cloud companies is, is, is just exponential. Um, and I think, and it's natural to, to, to predict this, that, you're going to see an acceleration of enterprise outsourcing. If you if you think about it, it and you think about the the high-rise office blocks in in London, even a lot of which have data centres consuming, let's say, twenty to twenty-five percent of the infrastructure capacity in those buildings, 
um, and also having to be under the auspice of the enterprise company, um, you can see why it's logical that they would want to outsource the, the, the data center to the cloud, um, transfer the risk to a third party um, from, from both providing um, service, but also um, outsourcing effectively the risk relative to, to staff. So I think we're, gonna, we're just going to see an exponential growth. Um, personally, what I've seen over the summer, I've never seen before, which is the utilization within data centers has increased significantly. Um, and what I mean by that is that normally you would see your customers drawing in, in normal conditions, 50, 60% of the capacity that you'd sold. Um, over the summer, we've seen customers drawing close to 100%, which is fairly unprecedented. And it just shows the degree to which the cloud companies are utilizing the capacity that they've got and then requiring to push on to address new demand. Um, so I just think you, you, you're just going to see an incredible growth in the industry, but you're also going to see distributed growth. So not just enormous demand in key markets in Europe, but in more distributed markets. And with that growth, do you think it will be, would it drive more new builds, more data center expansions or a mix of both? Uh, predominantly, I would say new builds um, because a lot of the data centers are, are reaching capacity. Um, I think what we're also seeing to, to some of the points I was making about the full utilization, um, you're seeing a number of the cloud companies look at revisiting their designs, um, which is driving a requirement for new builds that are more in line with where they want to go with their designs. Um, the other thing that, of course, we're seeing is the sustainability agenda coming through, um, through from Brussels, through from the UK government, and also through you know, corporate responsibility from the customers. So you know, more and more we're seeing a move to much more efficient, sustainable data centers. And of course that has an impact on design, hence why I'm, I'm predicting a lot of new builds. Mm. And obviously you just spoke about um, cloud companies revisiting their design. Is it just on the sustainability aspect or is there any other kind of um, features that would have come with a new build that would improve the data centers um, in general? I, I think, you know, our industry has just got to be alive to the fact that um, with the exponential growth that particularly the cloud companies um, are moving away from just accepting whatever product our industry offers to wanting to influence heavily designs and directly to your question, it's mainly around resilience. Um, because as these companies start to really sweat the, our assets in terms of full, full utilization, um, resilience becomes extremely important. And what I mean by that is just ensuring there's enough resilience in the cooling infrastructure and the power infrastructure to make absolutely sure there's no downtime. Um, so we, we, are, we are seeing most of the, the pivot in terms of design orientated towards Resilience first, but then, of course, sustainability second. And um, there's this um, keep in line with um, Cyrus One's 
2021 strategy, what is the roadmap looking like for the company? Um, it, it does. I think it's fair to say that we, we predicted the growth early and we really amongst our peer group embarked on the most aggressive development program in Europe and Europe seeing probably the most year on year growth from a global point of view in terms of regions. And it was great that we, we embarked on a very, very full build program 2018, 2019, 2020. And, and that will continue into 21 and 22 um, with you know, an, another strategy being to ensure that we are acquiring assets that have the ability to deliver significant scale because there's been a big uptick in scale, you know, with the average size of data centers moving from 10 megawatts to say 30 megawatts and beyond. So our strategy is to deliver our build program because it, it seems to be delivering at or in front of the demand curve. And then to ensure that we have sufficient runway in terms of land assets to continue with that delivery if the demand momentum maintains. Lastly, um, you said about the exponential growth in Europe, um, which obviously sounds fantastic for the data center industry, but is there any fear that the market in Europe will become saturated? Uh, if it, the answer is no, um, because I think of the, the barriers to entry um, you know, each data center requires such an enormous amount of capital that th this isn't like other real estate markets where barriers to entry are lower and where the markets can be just flooded with supply. I mean, people talk about a lot of supply coming through in markets such as London. Um, however, you, you know, we're still talking about an industry that has relative small scale and with the in terms of supply and with with the increase in demand per unit demand from the cloud companies any notion of oversupply can change overnight and i, I just maintain that with the barriers to entry we're not we're, we're simply not going to see saturation um, there might be a situation where new entrants end up land banking and not developing those land banks um, because They've found it difficult to effectively get traction with the key organizations that drive demand. But I don't think in any way we're going to see a saturation of fully built product into the market as we saw in the telco boom. It's just, just not going to happen. Yeah. And do you feel like um, there will be, in terms of like telecommunications and the internet in general, will there be more collaboration with the data center industry? Because originally it was two separate entities, but do you think that more there'll be a more of an overlap in future? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's funny. It's probably crept up on me a bit, but I think you know the collaboration is very, very, very strong um, now. Because I mean, you, you'll, you'll appreciate that um, the the whole notion of um, tracking demand is based on the cloud company's ability to scale within availability zones. And as you know, an availability zone is, is limited by the latency on the networks within the geographic area that 
forms that availability zone. And so the key issue for us in terms of being able to look at demand, but look at then where we can deliver capacity to support demand is about network topography. And so you, you've just got to be in very close partnership with the telcos to be able to have enough intelligence to make the right decisions. I mean, talk about back to basics in terms of location, 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 but that's where we're at. And the network topography and the latency is, is, is key, is absolutely key to, to that. Well, I agree. And um, is there anything else you'd like to add? I would I, I'd just come back to the sustainability point. I think it, it's, it's really crucial um, that I guess people understand that the whole, the whole industry is very, very, very keen to, to develop in terms of its sustainability delivery. So, you know, commitments to conserving water and energy through effective design, maintenance and operation um, are absolutely key goals. Um, and, and working very closely with Brussels and Westminster to ensure that the people setting down legislation relative to sustainability understand some of the location constraints and basic constraints around um, the infrastructure and, and our requirement to operate 24 seven. Um, and I think as long as there's, you know, good understanding that we're trying to, trying to get there in terms of the green agenda um, and good understanding from the governments about where we need to be and how we need to operate, I think um, we'll, we'll get a lot kinder to the planet over the years. Nice. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. It's great. You're welcome, Abigail. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Matt and Abigail. Um, despite the health crisis the world has faced over the last few months and which seems like it's going to continue for a while into the near future, Data centers have indeed proved to be a pillar of the digital world and demand has never been higher and we will continue to cover the development of the industry throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, with that said, that's all from me and the team for this week's episode of the Digital Digest. Thank you to you, um, our listeners at home. Join us again next week when we talk about the top stories that will make the headlines over the next seven days. In the meantime, make sure to subscribe to both Data Economy and Capacity newsletters. And for me and the team, stay safe. <laughs>